All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Steve, would you begin at verse 11? You can follow along there as he reads. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, this is a very serious time, obviously. It's talking about a day of judgment of a nature we're going to look at in a moment. But in order for us to get the key verse about the concept of this particular judgment, we're going to need to go to the fifth verse of 1 Corinthians 4. The word, therefore, is the first word. And so this is the concluding verse about this time that has been talking about. Steve, read, if you will, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. All right. Thank you, sir. I don't know about you, but uh, when I read about the return of Christ and the judgment that's coming, the judgment seat of Christ, it's always a very serious subject for me. Uh, quite frankly, uh, not a whole lot can be known about it. Not a lot is said in the scripture about it, but what is said is, is to be taken very seriously. Now, it's a little bit disturbing to me, to be honest with you. It can even be a little bit confusing because you've heard me and you've heard Steve uh, throughout our teaching in this class say that all the good we do will never cause God to love us more, and all the bad we do will never cause God to love us less because his love for us is never based on how we do. His love for us is based on who Jesus is and what he did on the cross of Calvary. Now, everyone in here can say amen to that, right? Well, the problem is, then why is there a judgment? Why is there a time when we will stand before the Lord and give an answer for the deeds done in the body? And that's what this passage is talking about. Well, now some people believe there are very, you know, many opinions about this passage. And one of the opinions about it is this, that this is like the weighed works, like the scales of justice. In other words, if you do more good works than you do bad then when you stand here before the Lord, everything's going to be hunky-dory, everything will be wonderful, and you're okay. But if the bad works outweigh the good, then whoops, uh, you, you know, you're not going to be uh, very well off. So they see it as a weighed works kind of thing. Now, you and I know that that can't be possible because our works have nothing to do with our eternal destiny. Our works have nothing to do with how God views us. He does all of that on the basis of who Jesus is and what Jesus did on the cross. And so we don't hold to that, that it's a weighed works kind of thing. Others have said that this is uh, about sins after you're saved. 
And, uh, you know, once when you become a Christian, all your sins are forgiven. But then later in life, you commit sins again. So this is dealing with all of those sins. My problem is I can't agree with that because uh, when Jesus died for my sins, all of my sins were future. And so the blood is sufficient for future things or we wouldn't be able to know the forgiveness of the cross. And so I don't think this has to do with sins at all. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Now, there's a third view, and it's really been more uh, the one I've heard in the past, and I even helped to it years ago for reasons I won't get into right now. But it's the idea that God has a video going. And he's kind of videotaping everything we do, good and bad. He's videotaping it, see? And it's on tape. And one of these days when Jesus returns, the trumpet sounds and he comes back to the earth and it's a time of judgment. We stand before the Lord and I'm sure that in that scenario they will dim the lights, flick on the switch, and there in surround sound uh, with, uh, you know, bright lights is the film of my life and of your life. Now, that's what I've heard from the pulpit sometimes in my life. I've even clung, come close to have, having said that myself. Uh, but, you know, when you really think about that, for the music director to get up then and sing, uh, now we're going to sing and do it joyously. Uh, soon and very soon, uh, we're going to see the king. I don't think so. If that's what that means, I'm not sure that it's a moment that I'm anticipating with all that kind of joy. Well, let me say something that'll help us all from the very beginning. Whatever we discover about the judgment seat of Christ, the time when we stand before the Lord as believers, whatever that means, and we'll talk about it in a moment, it has nothing to do with sins. In other words, sin has been dealt with at the cross of Calvary. And when Jesus returns as believers, our sins will never stare us in the face in the future. They have been dealt with in the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Listen to what the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 says. Listen to this. Uh, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of his people and he will come again not to deal with our sins but to bring deliverance to all who eagerly await his arrival. Hebrews 9 is simply saying the purpose of Jesus returning is not to deal with our sins at all. They were dealt with by Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So that would simply mean that if that videotape were true, and I'm saying this with a little tongue in cheek, but if it were true, it would be only videotaping the good things you do as a believer, the good things I do as a believer. And when we mess up, and we do, when we foul up and we do, the video is cut off because he said, I will remember your sins against you no longer. Whether they're past, present, or future, they will no longer be remembered against you at all. And so this is not talking about sins. 
someone's going to say, rightfully so, well, what about the verse that Steve read from first uh, from Second Corinthians? I'm I'm sorry, from First uh, uh, Corinthians four, verse five. Uh, judge nothing before the time uh, because he'll bring to light hidden things. What about that? But then someone's going to remember another verse. We didn't read it this morning. I want to read it to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Listen to this. For we, now Paul's talking about himself, and he never uses uh, the word we unless he's seeing himself with other believers. For instance, in ch chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians at the very beginning, it says, for we know that is believer, that when this earthly house, this body is dissolved, we have a home in heaven. We, he's talking about. Now listen to what he said in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that, and that's a little purpose clause in the Greek language. It means for the purpose of everyone receiving the uh, a, a, a uh, reward for the things done in the body according that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Now, the problem is, that's the King James, those are not the two words used in 2 Corinthians 5.10. The word good, the word bad, are not the correct words to understand what the Greek is saying. I don't know any Greek language. I know a little Greek that runs the cleaners, as somebody has said, but that's the only Greek I really know well. But I did research this, and I found out that in 2 Corinthians 5.10, when we give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, the word good is the Greek word agathon. And that word does not mean uh, good like we know it. It's talking about worth something. The good is, means that it's worth something. It's valuable. Now, the word bad here is the word uh, phelon in Greek. And the word phelon in Greek doesn't mean sinful, doesn't mean evil. It means not valuable or worthless. So what? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 is saying is this. When we stand before the Lord Jesus, we'll give an account for the deeds done in the body. But I'm telling you that we will only see the good things we've done. Well, then how are they called valuable or worthless? Well, it's the same reason in, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at it. Where Paul said this. Uh, Steve read it to us a moment ago. Uh, if any man, uh, every man's work shall be made manifest on the day, for the day shall declare it. Declare it what? In verse 12. For you build on the foundation of the Lord Jesus things that are gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble. Now follow me here. Wood, hay, and stubble are not sinful things. There's nothing morally wrong with wood, hay, and stubble. It's just worthless. There's no value to it. You understand, it's not lasting. On the other hand, gold, silver, precious stones, there's nothing holy about those things either. They're just valuable. So both statements about the judgment seat of Christ are saying the same thing. When we stand before him, 
all the works of our life as believers, the good things that we've done, building on Christ, not the sinful things, those are under the blood. We'll never face those. But when we stand before the Lord, all the things that we've done in our life, whether it's to go to church or read our Bible or talk to somebody about the Lord or love a wife or love a husband or uh, whatever we do that's a good thing, it's going to be put on trial to see whether or not it's worth something, valuable enough for reward, or whether it's not worthy of reward. Now, what in the world is the basis of the judgment? It was in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Notice what it says. Therefore, don't judge anything. Now, you know what he's talking about there? They've been saying, Paul the Apostle or Peter or Apollos had been the best pastor of the Corinthian church. They were arguing over who had been the greatest preacher they'd ever had. And what Paul is saying is, who am I? I'm not anybody. Who is Apollos? He's no one either. It's only God who gives the increase. That's why he says, therefore, don't judge anything. Oh, in other words, we're not to judge what someone else is. Why? Because you cannot know their heart. Now, when Jesus returns, it's the heart that will be put on display. And we will find out, notice in verse 5 it says, he will make manifest all of the motives and purposes that are hidden in our heart so that good things are not always valuable for reward because the purpose of them or the motive of them is not what it is to be that makes it valuable enough for reward. So there's going to be a time of reward. Now, what is that reward? Here's what I want you to see. Paul the Apostle is simply saying this. When we stand before the Lord, and we give an account, all of our good things that we built in our life on the foundation of the Lord Jesus will go through the fire and it'll come out on the other side, wood, hay, or stubble, not worth reward, or gold, silver, precious stone, something that is really valuable and worth reward. And what is the reward? Jesus said uh, in Matthew 25, the one who had five talents, you remember the one who was given two talents and buried it? Four Fear that he'd lose it. The one had five talents who went out and he made them 10. And Jesus in that parable said, so it will be in that day, the master will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now I'm gonna give you the Burleson translation of that. Do you know what the reward is at the judgment seat of Christ for all the good things that go through the fire and come out on the other side worth a reward? You know what the reward is? The Lord Jesus will say to you or to me or to whomever is standing before him, at a boy, at a girl. That's the Burleson translation of Matthew 25, 23. Way to go. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that even in our human relationships, we love for somebody to say to us, wow, way to go. Good for you. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is, there will come a day when we stand before the Lord Jesus and we'll be able to hear, well done, 
good and faithful servant, but only if the good things that we build going through the fire to be tested as to the motive and the purpose of that come out on the other side for his glory and for his honor. Now, I want to just say this to you. If you've got your outline, you're following here. But I want to say three things about judgment. The first thing is God has a right to judge mankind. Am I right there? He made us. He made us. You've got in your hand a sheet of student notes that I made. And I sent them in to have them printed and passed out. I created these student notes. Good, bad, or indifferent, they're my creation. And by the way, when I was putting them in your hand, uh, and I'm not sure why they aren't here because they were sent in, but uh, when I put them in your hand, in their hand, they didn't put them in your hand, I put them in their hand and they haven't got them here yet. They're probably at the back, but we'll find out in a minute. Do you know when I was making those notes, I tore them up, threw them away twice. I looked at it, that's not what I want. I threw it, now, Ladies and gentlemen, I had a right to do that. you know why? Because I wrote the stinking notes. I was the one who put them together. You understand? It's God who created all of us. Therefore, he has the right to judge us. But did you know that according to Scripture, he has a record of judgment? Do you remember that time with Noah? And he told and announced through Noah that there was coming a judgment by water, the flood. And he, Noah was told to build an ark. And he and all the souls of his family were redeemed on that ark. But the judgment of water came. And the earth was destroyed by water. God not only has a right to judge, he has a record of judging. And of course, Noah and his family was redeemed in the ark. And by the way, when the judgment comes at the end of the world, there will be lost people who are at the great white throne judgment. But we are in the ark of Christ. So we will never face the great white throne judgment of God. The judgment seat of Christ is called the bema. Not the judgment seat, but the bema or bema as some people say. Now, the Bema is different than the judgment seat. The judgment seat is uh, the judge sitting and the accused here and the condemnation coming. You're guilty. And here's the sentence. That's the great white throne judgment. The Bema is the awards stage. It's like when the Olympic champions have run the race or done their pole vault. They're on a pedestal and they bend and the metal is hung around their neck. They are accorded their place. They are accorded a value, first, second, third place. That's what the Bema of Christ is when we stand before him. It will not be for sin like the judge, but it'll be like the one who will award us with a well done, good and faithful servant. So God has the right to judge and he has the record of judgment. However, according to scripture, he has uh, relegated judgment to a certain day. Listen to, what, listen to what scripture says. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's Hebrews 9, 27. Listen to this verse. For he, that is God, has set a day 
when he, that is the Lord Jesus, we find that out from another verse, he will judge the world in justice by the man he has appointed, that is the Lord Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising that man, the Lord Jesus, from the dead. In other words, there's a point of the day when every person will be judged, okay? However, the cross of Christ, where Jesus died bearing our sins, is our message of the gospel. Of course we can tell people if the cross is rejected, then judgment will be faced. But our announcement is good news. For all in the human race who have fallen, we have a message of good news. The Lord Jesus bore sin upon himself and paid the price of our redemption so that whosoever in faith will call upon him will be justified. You know what the word justified means? Just as if you've never sinned. But that's not all. Just as if you never will. In other words, we are guaranteed to stand blameless before him. Why? Because redemption is the work of grace in the person of the Lord Jesus. Our sin has been dealt with. However, that day, we will stand before the Lord at the Bema, where awards are there. Now, I want to close this whole thing by taking the next 15 minutes and talking to you in an illustrative form. I want to show you how Christians appearing at the Bema will not be for sins, but it'll be for the good that all of us has done, all of us have done good. We've done bad too. The blood covers that. But it's the good that we're talking about. The good things you do. You guys, I was thrilled to death when I see you guys walking in, sitting down for a, a Bible study. You know, this is a good thing. It's a good thing. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Take my preaching, for example. Now, is my preaching a good thing? Now, I'm not asking you, am I preaching good? I'm not saying that. But is preaching a good thing? How many of you believe it is? Of course it is. It's a good thing to preach. Let me tell you about a time when I was preaching. I was pastor, First Baptist Church, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. We had two auditorium services stuffed. I was in an emotional condition that was not just really good. I was down. I was depressed. I had to get help for it eventually. Mary's the only one that knows this as a fact. But since she's here, she'll be able by her presence to verify whether I'm stretching it or not telling the truth or whatever. Between services, I had a little cubicle that I would hide in. Between services, two services on Sunday morning. And uh, in that little cubicle, oh, I'd beat myself over the head. I just didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. I didn't say it the best way I should have. I could have said it better. I don't think anybody got anything. I'd get so down, so depressed. Now, we had a secret knock. Now, if I heard that knock at the door, I knew it was Mary, because I didn't let anybody else in. Mary would come in, and uh, she'd say, are you all right? Oh, I just, just wish it had been better. Just could have been better. Now, she'd get down beside me in those days and said, now, Paul, just remember, it's the word of God. People get something out of it, whether, you know, but she'd pat my knee and say, you did good, you did good. Is that not sick? 
Do you under, oh, that's the sickest thing I've ever seen. A wife having to console a man who preaches the word of God and is so depressed that he might not have done it right. Do you understand that? Here's the reason. Because I was preaching so people would think well of me. And if I didn't do it right, then they wouldn't have a good opinion of me. Let me tell you about another guy that preached. I was pastoring in Texas. It was a Saturday night, a youth meeting at another church in another town. I loaded up 15 or 20 kids in a bus, and we went to here. It was a youth meeting on a Saturday night. And this was a former uh, farmer in Illinois who had, I think it was eight or nine children. I don't remember the exact number, but a ton of children. And uh, he had come to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary to train for pastoring. He'd been called, he believed, by the Lord into pastoring. And, I mean, he couldn't preach worth a nickel. It was the sorriest sermon I ever heard in my life. Didn't know how to put points together. Didn't know how to illustrate anything. And I remember sitting there with all these kids in my mind. I was thinking, now, Lord, I can't believe we got all these kids here for this lousy sermon. Now, I didn't say it to my own mind, but I was thinking it. Lord, if you had asked me, I'd have been glad to have preached tonight instead of him. Do you understand? Now, he finished his message broken as it was, using broken English. I'd run a dairy farm in Illinois for so many years and not talked with that many people. And all at once, he started the invitation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, there was electricity in the air. I've not experienced a moment like that in a long time. I don't experience them very often. But that night, there was something holy about what was going on. I looked up. I had my head bowed, but I looked up. And I saw that man as he was stretched on the carpet on his, on his tummy. And he was praying. Now, here was an uneducated dairy farmer who was training to be a pastor who was preaching. Didn't do too well at it. Couldn't be followed real well. But in his heart of hearts, the one thing he wanted more than anything is for the word of God to have an impact on those kids. And he was on his face praying. And here was a preacher at First Baptist Broken Era who had to get in a little dark closet so that he could get himself together. Now, put my preaching at First Baptist Broken Era through the fire at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema. Is preaching good? You bet. It goes through the fire. What comes out on the other side for Paul Burleson's preaching in those days? I'll tell you what came comes out on the other side, wood, hay, and stubble. You know why? Because of the purposes and the motivation that I had in my heart for it. But when that former dairy farmer has his preaching go through the fire of God at Bema, the judgment seat, what comes out on the other side? Gold, silver, precious stones. Why? Because God's not interested in how well you do it. He's not interested in whether you think you did it good or not. He's interested in the longing of your heart for it to be what God wants it to be. Ladies and gentlemen, I learned that night the lesson that I had to relearn in Broken Arrow, but I've never forgotten it since that time, and that was in the early 80s. 
the Lord isn't concerned, nor will the day of Christ at the Bema be a matter of how many sermons I preach, how well I did them, how many people heard them. No, none of that matters a hill of beans. The only thing that will matter will be the longing of my heart, my intent, my motive, and my purpose for having taught like this morning. Will I do it right? I don't think so. I can't even remember some of my outline. I didn't put some of it in the paper for you. We didn't get our papers here. Ladies and gentlemen, that's never the issue with the things of God. It's the heart, the longing for the heart to be for the glory of God. Do you see that? I'm going to illustrate it one more time. Uh, and that's with uh, our parenting. How many of you have kids? Raise your hand. We have four, two boys and two girls. And, uh, you know, our, our, our kids, we want them to do good. Parenting's, by the way, parenting's a good thing. Am I right? It's a good thing to be parent. Now, he doesn't intend for everybody to be a parent, but parenting is a good thing. Okay, one of these days, our parenting goes through the fire at the Bema. Now, we've got four kids. You can't have four kids without them being four different kinds of people. They make four different kinds of decisions on almost every issue. Some of them mess up. Some of them, all of them do things wrong on occasion. They mess up. Things happen and so on. But we long for them to be all that God wants them to be, right? Parenting. You want your children to be what God wants them to be. But now suppose I'm a parent who has my four kids and I drive up to the church and I say, all right, you four you're going to go up with me and you're going to be quiet in this church. You're going to sit there. You're going to open your Bible. You're going to listen to what the preacher says. And if you don't, I'm going to wear the seat of your britches out when we get home. Now, if you were to ask me, why do I want my kids to be in church? Uh, it's because I want them to enhance my reputation as a parent. Oh, I wouldn't have said that, but that would have been my motive for making certain that they never mess up. They never do anything wrong. On the other hand, here's a couple who just love the Lord. They've got four kids. They love Jesus. They want those kids to love the Lord. They do their best in helping them come to uh, things about life. Two or three of them know the Lord and serve the Lord. All of them are Christians, but one of them has a terrible thing happen and a pregnancy occurs, or they, uh, in some way or other, get involved with dope, or something else happens. Now, as a parent, what is my heart toward that child? Oh, it's grief and broken and so on. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not, oh, they, I can't believe they did that. What will people think of me as a parent if they have done that, if they show up that way? Oh, what will it mean for people when they look at me as their parent? Do you understand? If the first parenting goes through the fire where you're going to enhance my reputation, kids, because you're going to do right, act right, be right for my reputation, then on the other side, as a parent, I have wood, hay, and stubble. On the other hand, if I have four kids and one or two or three of them mess up like ours have, and they grieve the spirit like ours have done on occasion, and when my parenting goes through the fire at the Bema, what is out on the other side will not be wood, hand stubble. It'll be gold, silver, precious stone only if the longing of my heart was 
whatever choices they make, whatever happens in their life, I want God somehow to get glory and praise out of their life, period, no matter the circumstances, good or bad. That's the gold, silver, precious stone. Is it, is it understandable? Well, then let me give you one more and we'll nail it down, okay? How about a long marriage? Mary and I have in our 61st year. We've had a long marriage. My stars, that's a long marriage, okay? Now, somebody says, oh, it's so wonderful to have a long marriage. 61 years. How wonderful it's been. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't want Mary to stand and give testimony as to the stuff that we faced because she tends to tell the truth. And I wouldn't want the truth to be known publicly in this moment right now about some of the things we face, some of the things that I've done or I've said or maybe she's experienced. We just don't want that. Now, we'll work it out. We'll work together to work through it but the fact is, a long marriage is no indication there hasn't been real struggle. Now, it's a good thing to have a long marriage, right? Somebody's married, two Christians. Things don't go well, their marriage ends in divorce. Oh, long marriages are good, right? Yeah. But not every long marriage will go through the bema as gold, silver, and precious stone. Why? Because some people will not get a divorce out of fear of what people will think, fear of what the family says, or just shame because folks would know how bad a marriage they have. So for years and years and years, they live without the benefit of a close marriage relationship. But the marriage will not be judged on how long it was but on whether or not the heart of the couple were longing for the other person to experience what God wants them to experience in a marriage. On the other hand, you got a couple, man and a wife, both say they know the Lord. She decides she doesn't want to stay with him any longer. She finds someone else. Here's this guy. Or it could be the woman who remains and the guy is gone. Rain on it. I'm not going to be a part of that marriage. You do know, don't you? that even as Christians, you cannot make somebody remain in a marriage? And if at the judgment seat, that short marriage goes through the bema, now watch, it can come out on the other side, gold, silver, precious stone, when really someone married 61 years might not. You say, how come? It didn't even last. No, you don't understand. God never rewards us on the basis of what someone else chooses to do. They award, he awards us on the basis of the longing of our heart so that a person could have longed for a marriage to last and it not. And when they stand at the Bema, the Lord Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. But a divorce happened. No, you don't understand. My measurement is not the length of the marriage. My measurement was the longing of your heart. And you cannot make a partner long to keep a marriage together. But if it's the longing of your heart, 
you'll stand before the Lord and hear him say, well done. Does this make sense? I want to close with two simple things. Number one, don't ever forget this. This side of eternity, there'll never be any such thing as a pure motive. So don't leave this room thinking, Brother Paul says, we've got to have pure motive. Oh, no. That's just a work. Don't ever think this side of eternity, anything will be pure. All I'm saying is when we leave this room, we can leave knowing that one day it will be the longing of my heart that comes to light. And Lord, I want you to create that longing. I want you to do whatever necessary to bring that longing about. I want to have a motive and a purpose that is for your glory. I'm not there yet. But I want to be. I want you to create inside me that kind of thing. And when you have that longing, now listen to me, the Holy Spirit will do what only he can do. And this is why when someone says, oh, Brother Paul, that was a wonderful Bible study. It goes one ear out the other. Or if somebody says, oh, Brother Paul, that was an awful Bible study. It goes in one ear and out the other. Why? Because the issue with teaching or the issue with studying is never what a person does. It's what they're longing and the, the, the motive of their heart really is. And for a longing to hear and to receive the word, doesn't matter how terrible it is, the Holy Spirit will do his work. Or if there's a longing to speak the word and to teach it so people can hear and be changed, the Holy Spirit will do what only he can do. And the day of the Bema will reveal the motive of our heart. And so we'll stand before him and hear him say, well done. But the second thing I want to say is this. Don't ever get the idea because you hear a study like this that when you stand before the Lord, and if maybe all your motives weren't right, don't ever get the idea you're going to stand there before the Lord Jesus and he's going to be angry with you, upset with you. Can I tell you something, Christian? I'm talking to Christians only. You will never know the anger of God. All of the wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus when he died on the cross. He'll never be angry with his children. Now we can grieve him. We can quench his spirit. We can wound his heart, but he'll never be mad at you. You know, when President Richard Nixon returned from China, February 28, 1972, seven days in China, he opened it up for the industrialized world as it is now, actually. I know all the stuff they messed up in. But in that day, I was rather proud of what he had done. I saw Air Force land, uh, one land in Uh, Washington, D.C. at Dulles International. I saw, you know, how stupid he was. He raised those two signs of victory, you know. And the Marine Band was playing Hail to the Chief, and the Honor Guard was there, men and women, young men and young women, in uniform, every uniform imaginable. And they snapped to attention, and they saluted as the president walked down, Richard Nixon. I'll never forget that day. I was watching it on television. I even checked on Google to make sure that I had all the facts right. When he turned to this person, he personally saluted them. Went to the next one, personally saluted them. Went to the next one, personally saluted them. 
down one, up the other, while the Marine band was playing Hail to the Chief. I remember that day of having the fleeting thought, wow, but that's nothing compared to what's going to happen when we stand before the Lord Jesus. Now, we won't stand like an army. We'll stand as, as his redeemed brothers and sisters because of the cross. But we'll stand before him for him to make an assessment of our hearts and the good stuff that we've done. And for some, he's going to say, at a boy, at a girl. But for those who, for whatever reason, their motives were not where they needed to be. They were maybe not willing to look at them. They'll stand there redeemed. Work's gone through the fire, but they will be saved. Stand there saved. Don't ever get the idea that Jesus is going to look them in the eye and say, oh, you rascal, you, you should have done. No, let me tell you what Jesus is going to do. I know this. I know this because I know him. In the Middle East, they don't shake hands. They kiss on both cheeks. The Lord Jesus, I think, is going to grab us by the shoulders, hug our neck, kiss us on both cheeks, every one of us, when we stand before him. Welcome home. Welcome home. But for some, he's going to say, at a boy, at a girl, way to go. But for every redeemed person, he's going to say, welcome home. The verse of Scripture says, uh, he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. I used to think that meant pain. I'm not sure that doesn't mean the embarrassment of how I didn't really long to serve him like I wanted to. And I'm going to be weeping in his presence. He's going to wipe away the tear. That's all right. It's all right. I love you. I could not love you more. I've got a place prepared for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when I end that, I can stand and sing soon and very soon. I'm going to see the king. And I've still got a heart that has to be worked on and changed into what it needs to be. But oh, the day of Christ when we stand before him will be nothing but good for those who've trusted him. Have you heard me? Does that make sense? If it doesn't, I'll start over and we'll get, we'll get it in. All right. God bless you. Thank you. We're two minutes over, so I'm going to let you go. Welcome. Uh, thank you for being here, and we'll see you next Sunday.